But again, John, grateful for you. Well, um, you're catching us in part three of a, a, part, a 12 part series called Endure. Um, and I don't know if I told everyone this story, but I told some of you this story before. Um, back in ninth grade for me, so it was a few years ago, I had to do a uh, presentation in civics class. Anyone have civics class? Anyone ever have civics? All right. So those a little older like me, I guess, have had civics. Um, those younger are like, what are you even talking about? Is that a class? You know, is that just how you act as a civilian? Anyway, um, and in civics class, I was a 13-year-old coming back from Barbados into this country. And this country is weird if you don't grow up in it, just the way it's different. Um, and I was nervous as all get out. And I remember in civics class trying to give a presentation on Delaware County. Anyway, I didn't even know there was a Delaware County in Pennsylvania until I had to give that presentation. And I remember, I still to this day remember the emotion in the room. I remember um, my, it felt like my cheeks were getting flushed. You ever feel that when you're extremely nervous in front of people? I felt like I was getting red. Like my, I think, I'm pretty sure my hands were literally shaking and my speech was just kind of, you know, st stuttering along, like just trying to, and it was terrible. It was a terrible moment to feel that time. Is it, can anyone relate to that feeling at all? Yeah, maybe those are some of your worst dreams or nightmares is having to maybe do what I do on a Sunday morning and get up and speak in front of people. And it is ironic, I guess, that I have to do that now is get up and speak in front of people after that history in my life. You know, that that is the reality. But here's a question as I think about that. I ask the question, what got me through that or why did I not just stop in the middle of that thing? And really what got me through that was I didn't want to fail the course. I didn't, I wanted to get a grade. I wanted to get something beyond the moment that I was in. And over my lifetime, and probably over yours, the people whom I have grown to respect the most are the people who can actually endure hard things with grace and strength. When people can get through some of the hardest stuff of life, losing a loved one, being sick themselves, losing a job, having a serious financial failure, having a relational break, whatever it is that brings us the hardest stuff, when I see people like that get through it, I look at them and I wonder, how do you do it? Like, what is it that gets you through? What is your why, so to speak? I don't know if those people interest you, but they certainly interest me. Just a couple of weeks ago, I finished reading a book by Viktor Frankl. He, um, if any of you know Viktor Frankl, he was a, a German psychologist um, who was, um, excuse me, I said German. He was a Jewish psychologist, excuse me, who was um, in prison during the um, Holocaust in Nazi Germany. As he wrote a book, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. I want to read to you just an excerpt from that because he went through a period of challenge and difficulty and got through it, and I want to reflect on that, and reflect on that this morning on how we do it ourselves. So here's Victor writing. He said, I remember a personal experience, almost in tears from pain, because I had terrible sores on my feet from wearing torn shoes. He's now a few years into his concentration camp time. He said, I limped a few kilometers with our long column of men from the camp to our work site. Very cold, bitter winds struck us. I kept thinking of the endless little problems of our miserable life. What would there be to eat tonight? If a piece of sausage came as an extra ration, should I exchange it for a piece of bread? Should I trade my last cigarette, which was left from a bonus received a fortnight ago, for a bowl of soup? How could I get a piece of wire to replace the fragment which served as one of my shoelaces? Would I get to our work site in time to join my usual working party, or would I have to join another which might have a brutal foreman? What could I do to get on terms with the capo? The capo was the Jewish prisoner who was in charge of a group 
of Jewish prisoners, who could help me obtain work in camp instead of undertaking this horribly long daily march. He says, I became disgusted with the state of affairs which compelled me daily and hourly to think of only such trivial things. Now, I can't relate at all to any of what he's going through, but listen to what he did. He said, I forced my thoughts, I forced my thoughts to turn to another subject. Suddenly, I saw myself standing on the platform of a well-lit, warm, and pleasant lecture room. In front of me sat an attentive audience on comfortable upholstered seats. I was giving a lecture on the psychology of the concentration camp. All that oppressed me at that moment became objective, seen and described from the remote viewpoint of science. By this method, I succeeded somehow in rising above the situation, above the sufferings of the moment, and I observed them as if they were already in the past. What Frankel did as he discovered, I'm going to say, he discovered his why. He discovered a transcendent reality that existed outside of his current moment that drew him to function and to get through the pain. In a similar way, I said in my stress of teaching about Delaware, I may get an F if I drop this now. There's something past this moment that I must look to. We do this all the time. If you go to uh, a family vacation and someone decides, you know what, we should get up early and hike to the top of the mountain to see the sunrise, and you hate getting up in the morning. You wake up at 4 a.m., though, the next morning, and you walk up to the top of the mountain, and why do you do that? Because of the transcendent beauty of the sunrise. You're in school, you're struggling with grades, you're pushing through, and you're trying to figure out, why, should I, why do I continue to study with, for my midterm and my finals? Why? You don't look at the moment, you look beyond it. Is it because what I want to do, because of the transcendent power of hope, I hope in my future that I will be a great, you figure it out, great engineer, great accountant, great whatever. I want to do something beyond this moment. And so because there's something transcendent out there, you're willing to push through. If you have young kids, you get up over and over and over again in the middle of the night. Why? Not because you love getting up in the middle of the night, but because you love your children. And there's something transcendent beyond the pain of sleeplessness that gets you up. People who endure through hard times understand their why, and it's always transcendent. It goes beyond their moment. Another German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, put it this way, and I love the way he put it. He said, he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. If you're clear about your why, you can live with almost any how. It's a powerful statement. Meaning how, and these are questions you've asked, right? How in the world am I going to get through COVID? How in the world am I going to get through this financial strain? How in the world am I going to get through this relational loss? How in the world am I going to get through this season of my life? How in the world are we going to deal with our family stress and the pain that we have? How am I going to make my faith impactful at work? How, how, how am I going to? How, how, how are we going to get through? How is this going to work? I think Nietzsche is right that he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. And this morning, as we look at this, the challenges of the hows that you have in front of you, the hows that a church has in front of it, what I want to do is take you back hundreds of years to a point in time where the early church looked at some very difficult hows and asked the question, what is it out there? What is the why? What is the transcendent why that can pull us from the difficult moment that I'm in to something greater? What is that 
why. And the lesson that I think we will learn from this church hundreds of years ago in an ancient letter that was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison, he gives a clear why and a strong why and a transcendent why, and I would argue the ultimate why that can pull us through not just all of our little struggles, but can provide a kind of clarity for the direction of our entire lives. And so in that, I want to take you to an ancient letter that Paul wrote called 2 Timothy. If you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn there. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the chairs near you. But 2 Timothy chapter 1 is where we're in, and we're looking at verses 9 to 12 this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 to 12. And again, just for real quick context, Paul is a follower of Jesus, an early follower of Jesus, and he is stuck in prison. This prison is not like the Lancaster County prison or our state prisons in this state. It is, to our best understanding, a large kind of hole in the ground. It is a dungeon feel to it. It is cold. It is lonely. There is a, a hole on the top of it to allow air and light in. He is chained. Um, and this is the last will and testament of a man who realizes that he is the leader of the church and he is about to die. And he doesn't know if the church will continue. He doesn't know how the church will get through it. He doesn't know how, under the thumb of a Roman government that is persecuting the Christians like crazy, burning them alive, et cetera, et cetera, how in the world will the church continue? And can this young man named Timothy make it? What will help him get through the how of what will be? What will help this church see beyond the hows of what they're going to be dealing with? And this section, he gives that very clearly. So here's what he says, beginning at verse 9. I'm just going to interrupt the, the text in a, in a couple different places here to, to make a few comments. Um, so let's, let's go into it. Verse 9, just a few verses this morning. He, he writes this, as he writing in prison, he says, He has saved us, meaning Christ has saved us, and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Again, I'm going to pause it here. I, I love what, how he starts. It's this picture of God through Christ has saved us, has called us. It's this invitation of being invited to a holy life. Let me just say something about that. I don't think this, when we think holy life, when I just read that out of context, I often think well, the, the more holy people in our world are the most moral or the most ethical, and the least holy people are the least moral and the least ethical. That's often just how we use that word. Oh, you know, are you a holier than thou? I don't think that in the last days of Paul's existence in prison that he was concerned about the highest degrees of morality. The holiness is this idea of I'm separate from, I'm living almost at a different level than, not better, but I'm seeing the world in a different way. I'm set apart for God. There's a difference here, and it's the worldview mentality. It's saying it's almost Paul inviting now Timothy to say, Timothy, I want to remind you, we're called to a different thing. We're called to God and to a holy life that's set apart from just seeing the world through what I can get from it and seeing the world through what the world offers. There's a holiness in that we see the world through God's eyes. I don't think in this moment he's mostly concerned about, you know, ethics and morality, but just a reminder that there is a, a way that God has called this Timothy to lead into that. And he goes on, he says, not because, and this is so powerful, not because of anything that we have done. Some of us need to just pause and make this verse be central to our days. We might need to put it on our mirror in the morning or on our home screen, on our phone or whatever. This is not because of anything we 
have done, but because of two things, his own, of his own purpose and grace. I love this, that he's saying, picture this, that a God of the universe knows that there's a purpose for your existence, and that before time, he set up this world that you would be born, that you would exist, and he's called or invited you to see the world through his eyes, through a relationship with him, so that you can experience purpose in him, and not just purpose, but also what we all long to experience, and that is grace. That you will, you will stop critiquing yourself, you will find acceptance in who you are and how God has shaped you and made you, that you can find a grace that leads to repentance and kindness, that you can find the loving heart of a heavenly Father. And he's very clear about what this grace is. Look at the next sentence. He says, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. This is so important to, to pause on this and understand this. This grace, he said, was given to us before, through, through Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, before the beginning of time. Here's what I've come to learn about Lancaster County, because um, I'm not a native Lancasterian. I think that's the right way to put it. When I lived in Dallas for a few years, um, when people wanted to get to know me, and I've talked with some of you about this, when people wanted to get to know me, they would often ask me questions about my future. Okay, what do you want to be? Where are you going? What's the next three, five years look like? Because what was valuable in a larger city is your future orientation. That's where we can connect, because we can share vision about what could be. In Lancaster County, or often in small, smaller, more rural places where there's longer history, value is located in the past, not in the future. So when people want to get to know me, they ask me, who were your parents and who were your grandparents? And when you can't relate to that, then you can't relate, which is why some people feel out of place in a place like this. And so there's this reality that in a place there's a historical value, and there's, I'm not critiquing that, I'm just observing it, and I understand the value of it. We, we also know this, that the longer the value of the history goes back, the, the deeper and more, and more unmovable its value. I'm kind of, really stumbled through that. I didn't say that at all the way I wanted to. That, that worked better in my head. Let me put it this way. Think about a farm in Lancaster County. There are sometimes you meet farmers, and they'll tell you a story of how far back their farm goes in their family's generations. And you know if it goes back two or three or even four generations, now all of a sudden, this is a really valuable thing. This is not just a piece of land. This has become almost a transcendent reality of carrying meaning from the next generation to the next one to the next one to the next one. has become way more than a farm because now we're protecting and honoring the history and value of this space. And I'm not against that at all. Here's what Paul says. If you think that the further back something goes, the more value it has. Let me tell you, before time began. You owned that farm. Before time began, you had that grace in Christ. Before it even began ticking down, there is something that you had. That is so powerful because of what Paul is going to say in a minute, that you know this is true, that the sun comes up and the sun goes down every day, right? Aren't you glad you came here to hear that this morning? Sun goes up, the sun comes down. It does the same thing the next day, over and over and over and over and over again. If we find our transcendent hope or value 
within the time-space continuum that we live in, that can be a good thing, but it isn't an ultimate thing. The only ultimate why must exist outside of this time and space continuum. And so when Paul says there's something that exists beyond time, that gets my attention. He says grace exists before time. It was in Christ given to you before time even began. He takes it further. Look at verse 10. That thing that was out there, and that's kind of philosophical, it has now been, verse 10, it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior. So when Christ came, Christ Jesus, he says, let me keep going, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It has now been revealed. So when Christ was born, we celebrated that at Christmas, his incarnation. When he was born, when he came, took on flesh, he was revealed this Eternal grace was revealed into my world and into your world, and the net result is that death was destroyed and immortality all of a sudden breaks into my world and yours. That's different. The sun doesn't just go up and down anymore. There's not just a new day, new day, new day. All of a sudden, what is inevitable, and that is death, is interrupted. And that's a really big deal. Because if I can find, if I can link my why to something beyond this world, then there is nothing in this world that can compete with that. Do you believe that? Do you agree with that? If I can link, I'm going to say it again, if I can link, if I can find my transcendent why outside of this world and the rhythms of the dailiness of life, then there's nothing that this world offers that can compete with the ultimateness of that why. Because everything in this world, this goes back to the author of Ecclesiastes, when he looks at the world and he says, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. What you know and what I know is that life's dailiness, we sometimes lose perspective on this because we're intoxicated with the ambition and busyness and activities of life. But when we step back and look and remember, you know what? How many of you remember, don't know, raise of hands, how many of you remember your great, 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 great grandfather's decisions that he made? I don't even know that far back, right? That's only a couple hundred years. If this world were continued to spin on its axis for 10,000 years, how many people do you think would remember that you ever existed? Don't let me discourage you. Or that I ever existed. See, if my why is tied into, I want to leave a great legacy for the next generation, I want to ask the question, why? If my greatest why, the reason why you get up in the morning and I get up in the morning is tied to, you know what, the reason I want to live well and I want to be moral and live a holy life is I want to live well for my children so they can have a future. I'm like, that's great. That is good, but it's not ultimate. Because I ask the question, why do you want your children to have a good future? Well, so that they can, you know, raise children so that their children can have a good future. That's great. Let me ask you, why do you want your grandchildren to have a good future? Well, so that they can grow up and be healthy and so that their children. Can. If I keep asking you why, this becomes a cyclical argument and there, there functionally becomes, for the philosopher and the thinker, there becomes nothing meaningful because all will be forgotten in 10,000 years. Even your greatest attempt to live a moral life, and while that can be depressing and discouraging, please don't let it be, it is very depressing and very discouraging if, listen to my if, if 
nothing can break into the time-space continuum. If there is nothing that comes in from the outside, it is incredibly depressing to live with the dailiness of life. And this is why when Paul writes this to Timothy from the dungeon, he's saying, Timothy, it's not just about enduring the house of your moment so that you can be a man of better character. I want to tell you, your how, your why is tied into something beyond this world, beyond this time and space, and that is ultimate. That before time began, now we're disconnected from the sun up, sun down, sun up, sun down, sun up, sun down. I'm disconnected from that. Grace in Christ came there, and grace in Christ came in the body of Jesus Christ, and he interrupted death and brought immortality to your life and to mine. And then he goes on in verse 11, and he says, And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. Verse 12, That... He says, is why. That is my why. That is why I am suffering as I am. Paul is very clear. Here's my why. Because he was appointed a herald, an apostle, teacher of that gospel that teaches immortality, that teaches that there is something beyond this world, that there is a purpose for your life and a grace for your life that exists in the person of Christ. And that comes beyond this world. He said, at the end of verse 12, he says, this is no cause for shame, meaning his suffering is no cause for shame, because I know, he says, whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. One thing about that I just want you to see, in case you didn't, is look at what he says there again in the, the, the sentence where it says, yet there is no cause for shame, because I know, he doesn't say, I know what I have believed. He says, I know who or whom I have believed. Very important distinction. He's not trying to say, you know, make sure you get your doctrinal statement all right and make sure you get all the theological I's dotted and T's crossed. Only believe the right things and read the right things. And it's not about what. It's not about having faith in faith. It's about Jesus. It's about a person. He's like, I, I know him. I know him. I know whom I have believed. Because of Jesus, I'm not talking theory. I'm not talking philosophy. I'm talking a man, Jesus, the God-man who came, who interrupted this time-space continuum, sun up, sun down, sun up, sun down, all the time. He interrupted that, and he brought into this world an eternal grace, an eternal purpose, a transcendent why to your life and to mine. And brought immortality to bear on what is otherwise incredibly meaningless. This is the why for Paul as he's writing in his dungeon prison. Not just so that the church can be awesome, can expand, and we can have beautiful buildings and great music and great teaching and great fellowship. Not just that. And those are good things. But they're not ultimate. The why for Paul is the why that he's trying to say to the church, church, your why that you can discover in Christ your purpose and grace and extend that to the world. That is why Paul is suffering as he was. So this is why I go back to what Nietzsche said at the beginning. Nietzsche put it this way again. He said, he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. If you're in a dungeon in Rome and you know that your why is that you have a transcendent eternal God who's purposed given purpose to your life and given grace to you to face the suffering you're about to face, you can face anyhow. You're connected to something beyond this world. 
You live that holy life in the sense of being different toward God. And we all have, we all have, and I just want to touch on this and move forward. We all have, and I do too, I think you do too, we have lesser whys that we live for. They're not all bad, but I just want us to be aware of them. Lesser whys, I want us to talk briefly about that. Lesser whys often put pressure on others, myself, and my world. Lesser whys always put pressure, I would argue, when they become ultimate. Meaning this, let me play this out on others. If one of my whys for existence is the reason that I might exist or the reason I function or live and be creative and love the way I do is because I want to have great children, I want my children to be successful. If that why becomes an ultimate why, I'm putting pressure on others, on my children, that at some point they need to live into that and become successful. To put a why on them, make that an ultimate why, it does lead to a pressure on them that isn't healthy. If my why is on myself, you know what, my why, the reason why I'm existing, the reason why I go to work and I try to be successful is because I want to have a great reputation. I want people to respect me. And the reality is I can't fail. I can't make many mistakes, therefore I can't apologize. I must be a little more prideful than I really need to be. Humility is going to be hard for me because I can't see or embrace failure as a part of my existence. It puts too much pressure on myself to have my why be that my name is made great in your eyes. What's pressure on my world? When I say that part of my why is I want to have a, a great home, I want to drive a great car, I want to be healthy myself, then I can't have anybody ever wreck my car, I can't have any health problems, I can't have something ever go wrong with my home or the things that I own, that the world around me must always deliver to me what I want it to deliver. If my why, if my ultimate why or ground for being is tied into anything that is a part of this daily world, I'm going to put pressure on people and pressure on myself and pressure on the world that I create to deliver for me something that it cannot deliver, not in an ultimate sense, right? So this is where I go back to. What's Paul's why? Let me put it this way. This is what I see in this text. Paul's why is discovering that God has purpose and grace for you in Christ is the ultimate why. Discovering that God a transcendent being, the creator of all of time, space, continuum, has purpose and grace for you in Christ is the ultimate why. Why in the world should you continue to endure the challenges that you're enduring right now? Why should you be a great parent? Why should you be a great spouse? Why should you continue to study? I'll tell you why you should continue to study, because... God needs people in this world who understand how this world works from an engineering standpoint, from an architectural standpoint, from a financial standpoint, so that you, you can use your gifts to order this world for the benefit of the people around you. That's why you should study. Why should you endure in your marriage, not just so that you can have a great name and have great children and your family won't be wrecked? I mean, that might be a good thing. But why? Because God, through Christ, considered himself nothing, Philippians 2 tells us, endured the cross, scorning its shame, put himself below humanity, and said, not my will functioning, but yours be done. Why should you endure? Not just so that your marriage can be great, although I hope it is, but so that your marriage reflects the character of an eternal God who's coming into this world so that people will look at you and be like, what's going on with you? I know things were hard, but all of a sudden you're restored. Why? Why? Not just because I want to have a great family. Why? Because there's an eternal God who broke into my world and gave me purpose and gave me grace. And I want to work that out in my marriage. And I want to work that out with my children. I want to work that out in my business and what I do. And so let me ask you this as we wrap it up here this morning.
What is my, what is your compelling why? What is your compelling why? Why is it that you endure what you endure? Why is it that you do what you do? And why is it that you think you can get through your house? Or how are you going to get through your house? See, what Paul reminded us of is that there is a God who exists beyond this space. And the beautiful thing that he has done is given us purpose and grace through Christ to know him, not just about him, but to know him. So that in every relationship, in every action that I do in my work, everything that we do here at the church, that it can be a light to and an example to and leading people to see this God who brings purpose and grace. Discovering, discovering for you and discovering for me, this God who gave you purpose and grace. So friends, what is your compelling why? Paul was clear in here. This is his why. This is his why. What is yours? Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the time to be together this morning in this passage and reflect on some big ideas that often we just don't even have time in our days to think about. So I thank you for a little bit of margin to do that this morning. I thank you for Christ and the gift it is to us to be able to see that there's a God who broke into the rhythms of our day-to-day, who broke into this time and space world in which we live, and has injected purpose and grace into it. This grace that existed but was created before time began, that we now have a channel to or access to in discovering our relationship with a heavenly Father through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray for us as we go through our days, I pray that you'd keep us from being hitched to the lesser wise. Keep us from spending our days and our years pursuing our reputation and our family as ultimate wise. May we serve the people well that we connect with, yes. But, Father, I pray that we wouldn't put undue pressure by making lesser wise the ultimate so I pray that you give us grace to continue to discover you and your purpose for us through grace in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray.